Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people from around the world. And you know what? I think I've got one of the best jobs in the world where I truly speak to some inspiring people. And our next guest is no less. In fact, I've been chasing her for a while. I'm incredibly blown away by the work that she has done. I've watched her on LinkedIn. I've seen her grow from role to role, but I love the simplicity at the very core of what she does. So I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Farhana Kudus. Uh, she's a global head of diversity and inclusion. She's currently supporting NASA on the equity mission. Sounds so impressive, doesn't it? And she spent time working inclusive uh, workspaces in fintech, in banking, nationwide building society, broadcasting and media. She's worked at Sky and NBC Universal. She's a multi-award winning thought leader recognized at the European Head of Diversity of the Year Awards and in Women in Fintech Powerlist as a top standout 35 to name a few. Oh, I just need to take a breath there before I say Farhana. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for taking time out to come on the podcast today. Hello, and thank you for having me here. Um, it's an honour to be invited and to be in this space. You you have such a depth of experience when it comes to diversity and inclusion, and you'll have seen and uh, you know you'll be constantly environmentally scanning what's gone and going on across so many industries. Uh, and inclusion and diversity has been always at the top of the agenda, certainly over the past three decades, as far as I am aware, certainly from the context of policing. But I see it's more and more so being repeated or same messages, same challenges being repeated in so many industries of late. What do you think are the current challenges when it comes to diversity? I think diversity, equity, inclusion has been around forever. Um, I think the reality is... Um, even today, people are getting used to those terms, to making it part of the the day to day, because diversity, equity, inclusion is our day to day. It is. I think it's been around forever, whether whether we've realised it, whether you know some of us have accepted it or not. But I think the challenges that are hitting us right now is um, is is what are we choosing to do about it? Um, are we choosing to understand it, and what does it mean to us? And I think the so what has evolved. Um, you know, years and years ago, when we look at, you know, the systemic inequalities that have been uh, created over time in every single aspect of our lives, right? They've come about because we've allowed it. They've come about because of the basics behind diversity and inclusion. And so if you look at the so what, I think the so what has evolved. The need is still the same, but the so what of what this looks like, how it affects us, and how much more we care 
it's different, I think. I love this idea of the so what. And I think it's the so what that we very often, where we often stop uh, and we don't go beyond that point because it can seem a bit scary in terms of the, the requirement of leadership courage, maybe the effort of organisational change. A lot of people are saying we don't like the word culture anymore in organisational context because it's it's been a, a phrase or a word that's been hijacked. Um, but I say, you know, we can get caught up in semantics, can't we, with all of this? At the fundamental core of everything that you're talking about there is a recognition that every single human being, in essence, is going to be different. And this is about creating the right environment, the right personality of the organisation, the right culture, whatever you want to call it. It is about making it much more human-centric. So what does it look like for you? At its core, if we strip, strip back what diversity, equity, inclusion is, it's respect, it's empathy, it's coexisting. Um, it's humanity, basically, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's DEI at a basic level. Um, it becomes complicated when we start to layer on things that have happened over time the misconceptions, the biases um, that we've, you know, that have been ingrained in us. Some some of that is none of our fault, right? Because it's the environment that we are coming into. But a lot of it is in our control. So it may not be our fault, but it's in our control. And what that means is that, you know, I have full control over the way I should think, the way I should behave, and and the, and the actions that I choose to do or not to do. So I think... Um, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion has evolved over time, but it really is um, um, up to us how we define that and how we choose to bring it into our lives. Um, when you talk about a human-centric approach, that's exactly, I guess, my ethos. You, you said it in a word, in a sense that without using the word DEI, it's all about the person, whether that person is is the customer in business terms or the employee in business terms or just my friend sitting next to me talking to me on a podcast. It's just a human on the other side. And so at the basic level, it could be you and I coming together, getting to know each other, respectfully and culturally understanding how to say hello to each other, right? And then moving our relationship onto that. And then when you change the environment, that's when I think it starts to layer complexities on as to what DEI looks like or what it needs to be. But don't you find that um, we unnecessarily, and by the way, I respect everything that you've said there, and I'm in wholehearted agreement that uh, it is about that level of simplicity, but don't you find that one of the reasons why we don't move forward enough within both society and in organisations the, in the context of inclusion is because we overcomplicate the whole concept of DE&I. Yeah, 100%. But I think there's, there's, there's another factor here. It's the fear factor. Um, I always, uh, you know, I, I always see it in whichever environment you look at, the power struggle, the power hierarchy. And so DEI is absolutely as simple as, as we want to make it. It's what we talked about earlier. It's respect. It's, it's, it's humanity coming together. It's something about the fear. And, you know, I talked about the courage of leadership. I, I saw something this morning, uh, Fahana, that might resonate with you. So we often talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, um, my kids are a lot older. But when my grandkids come around, they'd probably be throwing this at me, FOMO. Uh, but I heard a new phrase today, FOFO, fear of finding out. And I wonder if it's that fear that you're talking about. A hundred percent. I think the thing that 
there are elements around us, factors that make us, um, I think, challenge what diversity, equity, inclusion should be. Uh, and that, I believe, is the power struggle, is the is the need to be seen to be doing something, the need to be seen to be the leader, the, the need to be seen to do the right thing. And when, when that thing goes wrong, then we start to introduce inequitable actions, inequitable behaviours. So I think, um, it's, yes, it is influences around us that are leading us to create inequitable and support inequitable environments. But it's also, I think, the, the, the way that we've been wired to think about what is important, what looks good. Um, and I think it's, it's the power hierarchy that I think also plays a role. And so when we talk about um, people want to be seen to be doing something, actually, as, as soon as we let go of our egos, then actually, does that resolve some of the problems that we see that leads us to an inequitable environment? Even in situations where you see conflicts happen, what's the key reason why conflicts don't end up being resolved? Because egos are too much, power struggles uh, are clashing too much, no one gives back, you know, takes away. And so holding on to those ego means that I don't apologise, or I can't open my mindset to understand what is right or what should I have done and what should I have said and what's the consequence of that. I love this whole concept of the ego. Uh, without it sounding too negative, you know, people can shy away. As soon as you mention ego, it's, you know, defences are up. But there is some science behind this whole concept of ego, where does ego come from? Why do people practice ego in an organisational sense? And there's some work done by a chap called Carl Albrecht, Dr. Carl Albrecht. He talks about the five supreme fears and the, the ultimate fear is the fear of ego death. And he says, where does that come from? Well, what is ego death? It's, it's a fear of uh, being humiliated. It's a fear of being found out. It's a fear of uh, rejection of some sorts. Uh, so I wonder whether sometimes leaders often resort to this concept of ego because they don't want to be humiliated or, or be seen to be inadequate leaders. So I wonder if it's a defence mechanism. I think that's absolutely right. Um, that, that is a valid, valid, uh, valid reason why we see it. But let's turn that on its head. If we look at it from the other perspective um, of the mm. of, of all of us leaders as well as non-leaders, if we could take it back to the work environment, we all need or, or the home environment. We all need psychological needs, right? So I'm I'm referring to the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When we talk about what does the I look like stripped back. A lot of it for me talks to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Absolutely, it does. That talks about the very first thing that I need to do is to feel safe, is to be able to survive with oxygen and air and clothing, right? That's basic. So if we put that into the work environment, what does that look like? That looks like me having a job, me being paid for that job, and then me being able to do that job with my tools. And then beyond that, you get safety needs, you know, that belonging, that, that, that sense of uh, connection. And then it goes beyond that, right, to, to respect, growing, nurturing, and then self-actualization where, well, actually, we start to say diversity, equity, inclusion isn't a problem. So, yeah, very similarly, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think, for me, strips it right back. And all it is, is about is psychological safety, belonging, love, self-esteem. I think when people think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, inevitably, when they talk about the concept of safety, it, it, it very often... Uh, resonates with them in terms of the definition of physical safety. 
But we know now this phraseology around psychological safety has come about over the recent years. Uh, and we know that people who don't feel psychologically safe are more inclined to leave your organization. Consequently, we've seen things like the great resignation, quiet quitting, all of this, these phrases that have come about. These are new phrases, uh, but they actually signify something that is actually happening across all sorts of industries. So I know many organizations, I saw something uh, only this morning, an article this morning about an industry that was pulling together a conference about how do we retain our staff in our industry more so. But I think many, many industries quite, uh, right now are hemorrhaging talent and that's costing them in their bottom line because they have to now retrain, they have to go through the effort of recruiting. So what could they do to retain talent? What could all industries do? Any organization, what are the key points would you say that are important to retain your staff? I think the number one for me, one thing for me is, is become people centric. When we've got a, a vision and a strategy that centers people, then I think everything grows from that. Whether it's about building a strategy that thinks about our people that are building that strategy and delivering it, right? Well, someone's got to do it. What employees working for that organization? Um, whether it's your well-being strategy, whether it's your people people policies, whether it's the products that we deliver, everything then stems from being people centric. And then you start to focus on 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 the customer products that you might be delivering as well. So being product people centric allows us to think about who works for us, what type of organisation do we want, so who else do we need for the door, how do we create an environment that is welcoming for everyone, and then how do we then become the the, the linchpin, if you like, for all other organisations to follow. So I think number one has got to be become people-focused. Um, you know, even the language matters cool, right? Um, I think the second one uh, has to be let's let's invite people into the room and those people can be your own colleagues your own employees it certainly has to be the leadership team it can be external voices as well um so so let's invite it, it, people in the number three is about then using that voice if we are inviting people in and they are sharing um let's allow them to speak Let's understand and hear those voices and then use those voices. There's a lot of organisations that go wrong by saying you're invited to the table, but then not using those voices that are shared. This particular one resonates so powerfully with me, uh, Fahani, because, I mean, for many years in the police service, I was I was found a member of the Black Police Association. I sat, uh, I sat at many, many a table. I was vice chair of the National Black Police Association. Again, sat at many, many a table to... To, to, to bring about this, uh, this equity and this inclusion. But I think you're absolutely right that um, diversity for me is more than just chasing these targets around representation. They become meaningless if when you bring people uh, from minoritized communities into your organization, but then you don't listen to them when they're around the table, you don't welcome the cognitive uh, diversity that comes in with them, then of course it's it's you're not achieving anything. It's not moving forward. You you are basically getting into a tokenistic sort of uh, uh, culture. And I always say, you know, there needs to be uh, different elements to your strategy, your inclusion strategy. For example, goal number one might be I want to create an inclusive environment, which might look like at the start of it, opening your doors and seeing how you can diversify your workforce. 
But the second challenge, the second part of the strategy has to be, once I've got you here, how do I keep you here? And that is where we where we really get into the crux of equity, is understanding who I've got in my room, um, creating the work environment to, to, to empower them, to help them flourish, right? Um, and then to say, actually, what are the what are the uh, uh, augment, organizational designs that allows them to not just be who they are, help my business grow, but also attract others? And so you start to create this ecosystem, right? Yeah, I love that. So yeah, and, and then and then that, that goes further. So if I fast forward, look, people are going to always leave organizations and move on at some point in their career, right? That's not a bad thing. But the thing in our inclusion strategy is what we need to also think about is. When the person resigns and, and walks out that door, that's not the end of the inclusion strategy. We've got to cr- continue that relationship with that person. They become ambassadors of who we are and what we've created here, but also our organisation. And I think it was yesterday I was reading an article where someone had left an organisation and the relationship started to get sh- sour just because they had resigned. Now, of course, there can be mixed feelings, but as part of an inclusive strategy, I think it's so, so important to say it's not just the people in front of us. Strategy goes before someone's joined my organisation, while they're there, but also after they've left. I love that because many organisations will stop before that third point about, you know, they'll have the exit interview and that is it. That's symbolic of the end of that relationship. But actually, there's a lot to be gained, what you're saying is a lot to be gained from maintaining that relationship outside of the organisation because they become your spokespeople, uh, your ambassadors. They'll go into another organisation and maybe espouse good things about you so that others may come into your organisation and you become an employer of choice uh, to some degree. Um, One of the things that we often talk about is recruitment, retention, progression. And it's such a simplified format for me, but when you break it down, it makes a lot of sense to me. So focusing on the recruitment, that's about you opening doors and but creating the right environment for the right people to come in through those doors. Retention is about, uh, you know, making people feel valued, being really human centric in everything that we do in the organization. But it also has to have a lot to do with progression. So if, if you your representation or your cognitive representation at the top end of your organization is almost one dimensional, then you need to do something. Um, I mean, I work with a lot of uh, organizations, universities, uh, police forces, public sector, private sector, where they have called me in to deliver a leadership program that we've developed for their minoritized communities, simply so that we can equip them with requisite leadership skills, but also to uh, help their aspirational uh, skills to get to the more senior levels within that organization. So then they add a different element, a different uh, voice at the top end of that organization, which then, of course, impacts on their culture as well. So for me, it's recruitment, retention and progression. If you get all of those three right, then actually you're heading in the right direction. Totally agree with what you just said there. I think, you know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it's got to run throughout the business. And, you know, a lot of us get stuck talking about senior leadership. And absolutely, they have a crucial role to play, a fundamental role. So they've got to be brought into the journey. However, when we talk about creating um, an equitable organisation, everyone has got to be in that bus at some point, right? It's like I I talk about um, a, a train journey call. So, you know, 
people will be at different stages in that journey and people will get on at different stations. But both of our destination is to say, let's go to Manchester. Okay. But I might get on, on at um, St. Albans station. You might get on Waterloo station. Um, but you might get on a week later. I might get on the, on the station a week before. And so our journey starts at different stages, at different timelines, and that's absolutely okay. But our role as equity leaders is to guide people to that ultimate destination. And so when we look at an organisation, senior leaders play a fundamental role, but they've got to inspire and uh, the, the everyone else, but everyone else has also got to be in that journey. Let's talk about the police service. I mean, I have a clear passion for the police service. I was involved in it for nearly four decades now. Um, and yesterday, at the timing of this uh, this podcast uh, today, yesterday we had the Casey review in the police service. I don't know if you know much about that or if you've had the opportunity of reading that. But in essence, it's still saying uh, that there is a, a cost a culture within the police service uh, and institutionalised racism, misogynism, homophobia still exist within the police service. Um, whilst ever I welcome reports like this, there's, a, there's also a part of me that feels incredibly saddened or frustrated that um, this is just one of a series of high-profile reports over several decades that have said essentially the same thing. So why do you think it is that Huge organisations of well-meaning people, by and large. You know, I've known some great people in the police service. I know that we've got some phenomenal leaders in the police service. Why is it that the organisations such as a police service cannot, you know, get away from this 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 labelling of institutionalised whateverism in the in in there? I think it goes back to accountability and responsibility. So, in any environment including the police forces, we're going to get instances like what we've heard recently. But it's about when that happens, how do we deal with it? How do we react to it? And in my in my simple opinion, um, police forces is an example, but in every single environment I look across, things happen, but we are not taking the f- correct follow-up actions after that. So when I talk about accountability responsibility, what happens? When, when, when someone is discriminated in the police force, is someone held accountable, or does everyone else, the people in charge, actually turn around and laugh? Um, for the decision makers, look, decision makers have a crucial and a very privileged role to play, right? Um, so when these things happen, cool. What are the consequences? What are the following, uh, following actions? Who's taking responsibility of that? And are we then leaving the, the the mentality that what's just happened is okay? Because by not doing something, that's the message we give. So let me give you an example. If we look at the sporting world, the Premier League, there was a, a EDI lead for one of the country's well-known Premier League clubs. That was found over a series of t- tweets, over a series of years, to use uh, discriminatory languages towards certain groups of people. And so what did the FA turn around and do? They turned around and said, we'll give her some training and she'll learn from it. Now, that's not good enough. And we had a similar issue, didn't we, with the cricket, uh, England cricket, cricket board as well, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Now... 
learning is fine. We all learn and we all make mistakes. But I, I as a person of leadership or I as a EDI leader or I as a, let's say, police director in your example, need to state what good looks like, right? Um, the issues have happened because either the experts to show the right equitable way doesn't exist or I've allowed it to happen. And so for that person to learn, who's educating them? You can't say that, you know, she'll learn from it and, and, and she'll move on from it. What does good look like? And have we really defined good in this situation? So I think um, for me, this cycle that you talk about is all about accountability, responsibility, and also, let's say it, consequence. Um, I, I hate to be harsh, but that's the reality. No, I think you're right. We cannot afford to keep repeating discussions, debates and arguments that have been going on for decades. Um, and we can't do the same things over and over again, hoping to get a different result. So I, I think there's a lot in what you've just said there. I'm going to try and unpack some of that and hopefully uh, summarise it, see if I've understood what you've said. One is around the consequences. And that for me is around, we've got to be, hold people's behaviour to account. And there has to be consequences for behaviour, good and bad. But there's another element to this as well, and that's about attitudes. We've got to uh, help shape attitudes, and that's about creating the right culture. It's about having the right training. I think training does play a huge part in this. But, you know, I think when it comes to training, I think we have to move away from this oppressive sort of in-your-face DE&I training that uh, I've seen, you will have seen in your time over many a year, where people feel alienated. People, It almost sounds accusatory. We need to create that level of training or that type of training that recognise that every single person in the room has a right to inclusion and diversity because they're all different and they all have different personalities and different uh, sort of experiences. Uh, and finally, I think it is about we can't keep responding in the same way. We can't bring in the same academics or the same kind of mentality to do the same kind of reviews and projects over and over again, which I've seen, by the way, in the police service so many times over over the years and that I find incredibly frustrating. So it is, it is about who is around the table, who is do, delivering that work, who are you bringing in to try and uh, resolve some of the issues that you've got in your organisation. And I just want to bring it back to this, this word that you used earlier on about fear. Part of the reason why we resort back to the same people, hoping that the same people will get us out of this mess that they've not got us out of before is because we have this fear of doing something different. Doing something different that's unknown to us, that is alien to us, and is stretching us way outside of our comfort zone. And I think that's where the leadership courage comes in. But I think you've really, really nailed it. Uh, you've hit the nail on the head with the very beautifully simplistic approach that you have to what, Others may seem as an incredibly complex uh, scenario when it comes to DEI. I forget the saying, Paul, but um, they say, "Unless you're a rebel, change doesn't come." And I'm sure I've got that wrong. But what that talks to is, you talk about this cycle, the ongoing cycle that keeps repeating itself, and so people are clearly doing the same thing again and again and again. But when you have someone step outside of that. And provide a different thought process, different um, challenge even, right? That's when you start to see those rebels. And I say rebels in a positive light, not in the negative connotation, but we need rebels. And rebels are, are the change makers. 
rebels are the people that are going to break that cycle of constantly going back and forth, back and forth, right? I, I think um, I'm a huge fan of rebels, actually. But So I forget the saying. I heard another saying. It said something like, uh, and I, I want to get this right, but it said it was something like, the rebels of yesterday are the leaders of tomorrow. And I thought, wow, that's so powerful. There you go. You said it. And we've seen living proof of this time and time again. You know, Nelson Mandela, um, so many people, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, for example, uh, so many people who were rebels, considered rebels at one point and then leaders in the next moment, you know. So we know it works. Yeah, and I think if you, when you look at these rebels, let's make, you know, you know, this is a big thing, right? To be a rebel is huge. It comes at personal consequence. We've seen it with Nelson Mandela. We've seen it with every single other rebel. We see it in rebels in our own organisations, in our own circles. But these are individuals you want, we need, right? Um, so we're, uh, being a rebel comes complexity, comes hardship, comes personal consequence. But actually, the question I think when you start thinking about it is how do we support our rebels? How do we create an environment that actually champions them rather than being a rebel is frowned I, I love that, Fahana, because that speaks to me directly because, you know, for three decades, I was there enmeshed in the Black Police Association, which was a voluntary role. I was chair several times over uh, when I was a uh, vice president of the National Black Police Association, talking right up at home secretary level. All of that was voluntary. Uh, and, and what I re re remember from that experience was, whatever I was trying to carve my career in the police service, because I always came from the philosophy that the higher up I go in the police service, the more I am able to influence the change that it, I, I think is needed. But I was also labelled as a rebel because I'm part of the Black Police Association. So I also had to, um, my obstacles I felt were maybe bigger or more complex or more numerous because I had this label of being a member of the BPA and I celebrated that. I was open about my role within the BPA uh, and, and, and that was a real challenge, I'll be honest. Advice to any, anyone thinking of being a rebel <laughs> <laughs> is actually uh, be clear what that means because if we look at Generation Alpha that are coming along, right, this is a generation that, will speak their mind, will raise their voice comfortably, easily, loudly and proudly, right? Um, and that generation I look forward to coming into their own. However, in the current little window before Generation Alpha come in fully, um, we've got to really think about what's, what, what's involved being the positive rebel we've talked about. And is that, is that um, hit on our personal consequence, on our, even our careers, like our livelihood? Like, you know, um, Shola, she she campaigns as an activist to be anti-racist. She speaks openly and to then have received death threats, a, a personal death threat to her family, to herself, with a letter posted through her door. Absolutely outrageous, right? So we talk about, look at Azim Rafiq, the cricketer, by speaking up, by being that positive rebel, by saying by saying or doing nothing wrong, but only repeating what has happened in an open forum, his life has been ruined. And so I'm an advocate for, for our rebels, our change makers. However, for anyone that's thinking about becoming a rebel, it comes at personal consequence and we have to be absolutely comfortable with that. And also uh, one experience that I've had when it comes to rebels, there are, there are three types. Uh, some people rebel simply by opting out. 
Uh, and I don't think, I think that has the most minimum imp- impact on the organization. Some people uh, as a rebel will fight back and, you know, they will take legal action or they will take employment tribunal and be really vocal, very, very angry about it. And I'm not sure that level of bitterness or anger really seeks, serves to help anything grow. And I think the real challenge for being a rebel is when you are able to speak the language of the organisation to influence change within the organisation or society or the community. That there, therein lies one of the greatest challenges for being a rebel. And if you look at all the greatest rebels in life, they have done exactly that. But as you quite rightly say, Fahana, it is not an easy journey. Listen, I want to. I could talk to you all day long about this subject. Genuinely, I could, uh, because I'm so invested in and so uh, have so much experience in this area myself. And you speak so much sense, but uh, we haven't got time today. I want to thank you for your time with us, Bahana. I know how busy you are, but I really do appreciate your time. All the very best. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.